thank you all for turning up and uh, it is an honor to again be able to prepare something and come before you and um, I trust it will come across okay because we need to trust God to do that. Uh, we continue on the theme of the so-called meditations for troubled times, but we've been looking at a few paradoxes. Last week, we took a little bit of a side tour and went on and looked at the flood. A pretty confronting event uh, recorded very early in the Hebrew scriptures, the universal flood where just a handful of people, just one family saved. And we often wonder, and it has caused offense to a lot of people. But I felt and I believe that it was not God destroying the world. It was a world that was condemned for destruction, that was going through the motions. I mean, God allowed it to happen. Yes, indeed. And that will continue to be so. Because when we continue to rebel against God, we have to pay a very high price. and that's the consistent teaching of the Bible. And the basic thesis last week that I presented was that it was the lack of repentance. You know, Noah preached for some say 120 years or something. That's a lot of preaching. Uh, well, I haven't done that much. And not one person listened to him. Whereas God sent, we looked at this, God sent uh, Jonah to the city of Nineveh to preach and the entire city repented and the city was spared. So there is a case to argue that it was the rebellion, sin is rebellion, and that is what caused the destruction. Exodus 32, about two, three weeks ago, I asked you to please read. I had a reason why I asked you to do that, and today we are going to look at it in some detail, whether we get through it or not. Let's see how we go. In Exodus chapter 32, we read about God getting very angry with his people because of this golden calf statue situation or they created a God out of gold and uh, God was really upset with it and sent Moses down. But Moses pleaded, appealed to God's character. He said God's favor and mercy. And I think that is something very important to learn, that we appeal to God's character when we pray, because God is consistent in his character. God does not change. So we appeal to God's character and God's favor and mercy. But when we say God relented, there is no indication here that God changed his mind as such, because his character is consistent here. Except Moses is beginning to learn more about God by appealing to God's character. That's what we can see here. Because Moses' integrity and confession of faith. So Moses is becoming a better person technically. Though in a minute I will show you that he didn't really become all that uh, better. And I also suggested that the key to unlocking all the paradoxes in the Bible is this one verse for me. And that is Genesis 4-7. God saying to Cain. If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it or you must master it. And I have said this quite a few times that the imagery here is that of a circus. The wild animals being tamed by a lion tamer or a tiger tamer or whoever. 
and having control over it. They rebel. They try to attack you, but you have the whip. The trainer has a whip. The trainer has a control. The boys know how to manage them. It seems that it's a constant struggle. There is not one moment that you can say, I am safe. You have to be vigilant all the time sort of thing. So question is, what is doing right? You know, the Lord says to Cain, if you do what is right. So the question is, what does it mean to do right? What is doing right? Because I don't want us to get into thinking that it is about salvation by works. It is not. Because we can never uh, save ourselves. And that's a lot of what we are going to look at is that. So what is doing right? I used to think and I still believe that doing right is obeying God. That was the, uh, the challenge to Cain. He found it very difficult to obey God. Secondly, it is repentance and we looked at that at length last week. So I'm not going to go into that, though I will keep on referring to it tonight. Third is grateful living. To me, that is the ultimate. Having an attitude of total gratefulness, living in gratitude. You know, I sometimes watch or listen to atheists talk about what sort of a megalomaniac God we have who wants his creation to worship him all the time, fall at his feet. I mean, these are people who have no concept of what it means to be grateful, what it means to be thankful. These are self-made people who think they are in control of their destiny. And I feel sorry for them. A grateful living is the ultimate way, in my opinion, at present in my life. I have moved on from serving God, obeying God. And now I believe that great, maybe in another five years time, there might something more might come as I mature or as I progress in my spiritual journey. If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? What is the sin that is crouching at our door? So we looked at what does it mean to do what is right. So let us look at what is the sin that is crouching at the door, which has got this amazing desire for me. First, the temptation to redeem ourselves. That is a sin that is, you know, it is amazing that human beings have this tendency not to depend. Even when they are dependent, you know, they think, that they are in control. I still remember Basha, the Muslim beggar, who taught me so much of the art and psychology of human relations when I used to go and sit with him outside Velo Hospital. Basha is an amazing guy. He would sit there and talk to me absolute philosophy on human relations. He would tell me why he uses an aluminum bowl for begging instead of a plastic one. He says, sir, they don't look at me. I cannot dent a plastic bowl but I can dent an aluminum bowl. And they don't look at me. They look at this aluminum bowl. And when they look at me, they see me. And if there are no dents in it, then they won't give me any money. You know, this is pure psychology and philosophy. And then he says to me, when they put a coin into my aluminum bowl, it makes a noise. In a plastic bowl, it doesn't have the same effect. People like to feel good when they give me money. You know, this is absolute philosophy. And he sits there and begs the whole time. Ah, he makes this incoherent noise. I said, uh, what do you do sometimes when I don't see it? Oh, I said, I go on a holiday. I said, where do you go for a holiday? Oh, I go and stay with my sister. He says to me, if I don't have money, I don't go and stay with her because I don't like being dependent on people. I mean, this is a beggar. 
sitting out in dirt, begging, says to me, I don't like being dependent on people. And that is human nature. The temptation to redeem ourselves is very real, even to a destitute in the street. Second, the sin that is crouching at the door is the temptation to make a wrong right without God, the self-sufficiency of it. We think we can make a wrong right on our own. Of course, it's much the same as redeeming, but it is also getting our world right. Unfortunately, whether it be science, whether it be philosophy, whether it be religion, we are all trying to get things right. But when we do it without God, it becomes self-sufficiency. And that is the sin that is crouching at the door, the great temptation. Third, uh, the temptation to justify our wrong actions and make them look right. How often is it? And in our training, we talk about the victim-victimization cycle. And on one side, the need for justification. On the other side, there is a need for justice. And this is the competing thing. And the one who wants justification oppresses the one who is looking for justice. So justify our wrong actions and make them look right. Fourth, the temptation to adopt a wrong solution to a wrongdoing. The temptation to adopt a wrong solution to a wrongdoing. I'm assuming that you got all that. I'm going to move. And of course, like in the previous slide, an ungrateful heart. That is a sin that is also the meaning of the sin crouching at the door. We looked at learning from the flood. We learned that God does not eliminate the problems of the world by eliminating those who disagree with him. That is not God's way. In fact, the flood was not God acting in his anger, but the consequence of human beings refusing to repent. We looked at this last week. What happened to the world during the time of Noah is consistent with the message of the gospel. There is no difference. There are no two gods. Martian was the guy in the second century who talked about two gods. He said the God of the Old Testament is not the same as the God of the New Testament. In fact, he tried to clean out all the mention of the God of the Old Testament by creating his own Bible. Canon of Martian was the first canon before the Christians had their canon. And actually, the reason why they created a canon of the Bible is because it was a reaction against Martian's canon. So the early church had to come up with a canon, which was a reaction against. So uh, what happened in the world during the time of Noah is consistent with the message of the gospel. Uh, the God we see at the time of Noah is the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. They are exactly the same. And that is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jesus warned the people who followed him that repentance is the way to connect with God. And I want to look at that one, that particular passage in a little bit detail in point form, of course. And this is Luke's Gospel, chapter 13. We referred to this last week. There were some present at that time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. I tried to do a little bit of reading to find out which historical event it is. They make a reference to a protest movement and how Pilate killed a lot of the protesters and so on and so forth. But I don't know what this particular historical event is that Jesus was referring to. 
there were some present at that time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Then he makes a reference to another tragedy. And this tragedy is those 18 on whom at the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? Again, Jesus says to them, No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. The message is exactly the same that Noah was asked to preach. No, there's not a great deal of difference. This is what God calls people to, calling them to repentance. So what do we learn from that? First, Jesus was not saying here in this Lucan passage that bad things happen to bad people and good things happen to good people. No, that's not what he said. Jesus did not say that these Galileans that Pilate murdered were innocent. No, he did not say that either. But what he said was, they were no worse than anybody else. In other words, all have sinned, which is the message of the gospel. All have sinned. But what he said was that those who did not perish were no more guiltless than those who perished. We are all equally guilty, except unfortunately, Pilate murdered these people and not the others. Thirdly, Jesus was not referring to the disastrous death of these people. I think it's very important to understand that. We all have to die one day or other. He was referring to them perishing. There is a difference between perishing. Perishing is death without repentance. I know I'm harping about this word repentance, but to me, that is the key. So he was referring to these people perishing. Perishing means death without repentance. We read about this all through the Bible. Fourth, death is a reality of life. That does not mean that we have to perish. The way out of perishing is entering into a relationship with God through repentance. Fifth, individual sin and suffering are not directly connected, but refusing to repent is a sign of arrogance and rebellion against God. It is the sin of refusing to repent that leads to eternal destruction. Jesus said, unless you live a life of repentance, you will likewise perish. Apparently, in that passage in Luke 13, 1 to 5, the word repentance is used twice. In one case, it is a definite action that repent once. 13, 3 is a continuous action and 13, 5, the word repentance is a definite action that you do something once. So in other words, we need to repent and we must continue to repent. Unless you live a life of repentance, you will not. So it is not repenting once, but also living a life of repentance. Sixth, Luke records a similar message from Jesus to his disciples after his death, burial and resurrection in Acts. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. Repentance for forgiveness of sins. 
we connect with God through forgiveness of God, through our repentance. And this is the key. 7. Paul warned the Christians in Rome, But because of your hard and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Romans 2.5 You are storing it up. Just because you are not punished now, it doesn't mean that you are right. And this is the same thing that uh, Jesus said about the blood of those people that Pilate mingled. Do you think you are any better? No. If you don't repent, you are storing up God's wrath because it is going to manifest. Number eight, in the book of Revelation, in the revelation that John received for the church of Thyatira, God warns, but I have this against you. What is it? You tolerate that woman Jezebel, it's a figurative way of speaking, who calls herself a prophetess, even though I have given her time to repent of her immorality. She is unwilling. This is the challenge. This is a sin that is crouching at the door. I will throw her into a sickbed. And those who commit adultery with her, it's all figurative language here, will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her. I think I am laboring here, but you understand what I'm talking about. 9. Jesus' warning is loud and clear. Don't take God's grace for granted. He expects us to produce fruit that demonstrates our repentance. The parable of the unproductive tree illustrates this point. And we read that immediately after Luke 13, 1-5, the two incidents he refers, then he talks about the fig tree. A man planted a fig tree, but it wouldn't produce any fruit. It wouldn't produce any fruit. Year after year he comes, and finally he says, Now, nah, I'm going to get rid of this tree. It's not worth having. It's wasting. It's taking up space. What is a sin that is crouching at the door? I gave a few points earlier, but to me, if I want to sum up in one word or two words, it is our refusal to repent. Self-sufficiency. A survey in 2012, conducted by the Barna Group. The Barna Group, um, Eric Barna, I think his name is, the leader. They found that 61% of church attenders could not remember a significant or important new insight or understanding related to faith. These are people who go to church. They could not remember, after the church service, a significant or important new insight or understanding related to faith after the church service. I suppose one could say we went to church to worship and not to have new insights. That's okay. Uh, I'm not going to argue with you, but I'm just saying it. this is what the bar. And they also found that half of the respondents to the same survey who had attended church within the previous week also confessed that they could not recall a significant insight they had gained at church. I don't know. Maybe that is how it should be. I just thought you might be interested. Exodus 32. I'm going to go through this with looking at a few different little themes. First, the shame theme. Once again, we see the shame theme emerging in the thinking of the Hebrew leadership. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people? This is after they made the golden calf and God got really mad. And Moses is now pleading with God, and he is using 
the leverage called the shame leverage, the shame team. It works very well. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, ah, Lord, Egyptians are your enemies, you know. These are the bad guys, Egyptians, Philistines, and so on. Whom you brought out of Egypt with great power. And why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that you are a bad God that he brought them out? to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth. Turn from your fierce anger. This is Exodus 32, 11 and 12. Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. And a fantastic argument. God, it is a shame on you. Don't do it. You know, and we see this elsewhere. You know, Joshua, when they lost the battle, he said the same thing. God, people are going to laugh at you. Don't do this. You know, it's shame for you. Of course, um, you know, we, we, uh, we are okay. Uh, you know, but don't do this. For your great name, do this. For your mighty glory, do this. You know, it, it's, it's fantastic, the argument. We have seen this time and again where the leaders ask God, what will you do for your great name if you let us down? If we lose, you lose. A lot of the prosperity teaching has a fair bit of smattering of this. Lord, if we are not prosperous, it is a slight on your name. Or other nations, especially your enemies, are going to laugh at you. Don't do it. We have to win. You have to make us win. Doesn't matter how bad we are, because we are your people. Shame can produce several results. First of all, it can lead to repentance. That is what Paul described as godly sorrow that leads to repentance. In 1 Corinthians 7.10, Paul says, it produces godly sorrow. Godly sorrow is a sorrow that leads us to repentance. Shame calls attention to the face because shame is losing face. It is losing pride and honor. So it is about your face. Repentance calls attention to the heart. Shame calls attention to the face. Repentance calls attention to the heart. Repentance is a change of heart, though the Greek word is metanoia, change of mind, but actually it is a change of heart. Secondly, shame without repentance can lead to cover-up. So if you experience shame without repentance, it becomes a cover-up. This is what Adam and Eve did in the garden. They covered up and hid from God. And they said, we were ashamed. Where are you? So we are hiding. Why? Because we are ashamed. Why? Because they didn't want to repent. Number three, shame without repentance can produce arrogance. That is what happened to Cain. His offering was rejected by God. In shame, he continued to rebel against God. It was shame that produced rebellion. Shame by itself is narcissism dressed up to look like self-pity. I like that. Maybe I, I must be, I must have written it down. Sounds very profound, don't you think so? Come on, say something. Say yes or something like that. Shame by itself is narcissism dressed up to look like self-pity. You know what narcissism is. Narcissism is just focusing on ourselves. It's being preoccupied with us. That's what shame is. Shame is the face. In reality, it is a form of self-indulgence. Shame can be a form of self-indulgence. You're not feeling sorry for the wrong you committed, 
but feeling humiliated because other people know and despise you for what you did. In fact, if they did not know, then uh, you're okay. You have no guilt. You're not going to do anything about it. If no one knew about the shameful thing you did, and if they did not look down on you for it, then we would not feel shame. When I was typing this this afternoon, I didn't have time to type further. I was thinking, if you're in a group, if you're with a group of people who are getting drunk and doing all sorts of silly, sinful things, the one who gets the most drunk and the one who does the most stupid thing would be the hero, right or wrong. Whereas if you are in a group of decent people and if you get drunk, then it is a shame, you see. So it is how other people view what I have done that creates shame. But guilt is different. Another time we will talk about that, we don't have time. If no one knew about the shameful thing you did and if they did not look down on you for it, then we would not feel shame. That is why in the middle of a cricket match or a football match, being watched by 80,000 or 90,000 people, a man or a woman would take her clothes off and run onto the field stark naked. Elsewhere, you would be ashamed. But here, you are a hero. Everybody cheers. The police chase you. You are on television. You know, it has got this fantastic feeling of being watched. Narcissism, self-focus. Since shame makes one feel inferior or inadequate in relation to others, it can motivate us to prove ourselves by self-justification. So shame without repentance leads to self-justification. I hope you understood that. The second theme I would like to, so we looked at the shame theme. The second is from shame theme to glory theme. Glory, when now here in this regard, we are displacing responsibility, i.e. blaming someone else. Then we move into eradication, purging of the person or persons deemed responsible for causing shame. I call it scapegoating. That is, you escape by blaming somebody else. Scapegoating is not that. Scapegoating is actually a provision from God where you acknowledge that you have done wrong. Everybody knew that the goat didn't do anything wrong. Scapegoating, on the other hand, is where you escape by blaming somebody else. So nobody knows you did it. Thirdly, so there is displacing responsibility, there is purging, Thirdly, there is gloating. That is, you delight about making the wrong right by purging or scapegoating. Because you are a hero now. Fourth, triumphalism. We have triumphed over our enemies or those who laughed at us or shamed us. Once we reach this stage, the original shameful thing is interpreted as crime against us instead of crime committed by us. As if our enemies did it to shame us. They deliberately did it to shame us. It is not that we caused our own shame, so we don't have to repent again. Earlier, in one of our studies, we saw how Joshua addressed the problem of disobedience of the nation of Israel by scapegoating. You remember how God said Israel has sinned, but Joshua stoned Achan and his family. We also saw that it was in reality Joshua solving the problem by not addressing the problem. He did not address the problem of sin. He displaced the responsibility from the whole nation to one man. We also observed the gloating and triumphalism by claiming that they killed every living thing and burned every city and destroyed every plant and tree. 
etc. But we know that it was far from the reality and nothing more than just a tall claim. They didn't murder thousands of people. They didn't obliterate the nations. We looked at that. They did not destroy, but they moved in and lived with the original inhabitants of the land, adopting their customs and religion, marrying their women and men. We also saw that some of their later leaders may have been Canaanites, like some of the judges, we looked at that, whom they were supposed to have eradicated. We saw that some of their people, like Uriah, the husband of Bathsheba, may even have served in the armies of Israel generations later. So this claim that we have destroyed everyone was just an ego trip. It is triumphalism. And as I said, it really didn't happen. The next theme I just like to briefly mention is who is on the Lord's side, being on the Lord's side. Joshua asked the captain of the Lord's army the night before he was to embark on this war, are you with us or against us? The reply was, neither. I'm not with you or I'm not against you. God is not on the side of any particular person or community. He is the Lord of the whole universe. The Bible should not be interpreted as a struggle between God and his enemies because God has no enemies. God has no enemies, though some people may consider themselves as enemies of God. Similarly, God has a lot of time for those who do not agree with him or even dislike him. God spent more time with Cain than Abel. The father of the two sons in the story of the prodigal son, the father spends an enormous amount of time with the older son, whereas the younger one he receives and sends him home and started a party. But the one he is talking to, we hear the conversation between the father and the older brother. The father says virtually nothing to the younger brother. He hears his confession. He did not even say, I forgive you. He did not even say, I accept your repentance. Nothing. It is not necessary. The one who has come back is not the problem. The one who is outside is the problem. And Jesus said, I have come to seek and save that which was lost. This is a fascinating story in 32. I'm assuming that you have read it. You know the story. Moses goes up to the mountain with Joshua and uh, he hasn't come back. He he's overstayed his leave of absence kind of thing. And people begin to worry. And they told Aaron, we need a God because the man who brought us out of Egypt and the God who is not seems to be around. So Aaron makes a god out of a statue of a bull or a calf out of gold that they had from Egypt. And uh, when this happened, God was very upset. And God told Moses, now nah, I think you don't need to spend any more time with me. You go down and spend some time with those people who are rebelling. You know, it's fantastic how God says, you know, I think our time is up. You should be spending time with your people. So go down. Moses saw that the people were running wild. And Aaron had let them get out of control. So Aaron was entrusted to look after them and keep them in control. But Aaron has lost control. And so became a laughing stock to their enemies. Of course, the shame theme comes again, by the way. You know, they have become a laughing stock to their enemies. Okay. So the, the problem is not that they have done something stupid. But the problem is 
that the enemies are looking at us and laughing at us. The problem is not that the church is decaying. The church has no message. The problem is not that 61% of people who go to church don't even know what happened there. That's not the problem. The problem is that other people are looking at us and laughing at us. That is a problem. If they were not laughing at us, we were quite okay. We will continue to sin in peace. We will continue to do silly things. We will continue to rebel against God. That become a laughing stock to their enemies. Verse 26. So he stood at the entrance to the camp and said, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And I think Joshua did the same thing. He said, whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And towards the end of the book of Joshua, we see Joshua making this fantastic claim. And as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Choose this day whom you will serve. And I think I have made a reference to it somewhere, so I won't go into that. But I thought, who are you to choose God? God chooses you. And don't get that order wrong. You know, we got to get it right. You don't, we don't choose God. God chooses us, us. Choose this day whom you will serve. That's a tall claim. That's giving a lot of power to people, sinful people. And as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. And we don't even know who Joshua's son married, by the way. It could have been a Canaanite woman. I don't know. I'm just making it up. Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites rallied to him. Now, this is a bit that I really wanted you to laugh. And all the Levites rallied to him. I mean, giggle, not laugh. Then he said to them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Each man strap a sword to his side. Go back and forth through the camp from one end to the other, each killing his brother and friend and neighbor. You feeling a little ug, like cringing or anything like that? Then he said to them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Each man strap a sword to his side, go back and forth through the camp, from one end to the other, each killing his brother. It's cringeworthy. Go back and forth through the camp, each killing his brother and friend and neighbor. This is exactly what happened in Rwanda in 1994. The Hutus and the Tutsis, cousins being betrayed because they belong to the other tribe. And I've heard stories after stories when I was there. This is what genocide is. The Levites did as Moses commanded. And that day, about 3,000 of the people died. Then Moses said, you have been set apart for the Lord today. Hey, hey, do you want to be set apart for the Lord? Anyone? Put your hand up. This is, this is fantastic. I love this. That's why I said you have to giggle. Moses said, you have been set apart for the Lord today, for you were against your own sons and brothers, and he has blessed you this day. What is going on here? What sort of Bible do you read? And how do you preach this in a church? Are you finding it difficult to giggle? If you don't, you have a problem if you can't giggle. So, who is on the Lord's side? Now, the question I ask is, why only the Levites came forward? There are 12 tribes. 12? How many? 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. There are 12 tribes. Why only the Levites came forward? The people who pretend to be the most righteous are those who are the most guilty. Comprenda? The people who pretend to be the most righteous are the people who are most likely the most guilty. Second point. This is the sin of the Pharisees that Jesus condemned. The sin of ignoring the beam in my eye and condemning my neighbor 
for the speck in his eye. So, question. When people said, Moses is delayed and we are a bit lost, who suggested the idea of the golden calf? Any thoughts? Who suggested Aaron, it? Aaron. Aaron. And who is Aaron? Priest belonging to the tribe of Levi. So, when Moses said, who is on the Lord's side, the first people to come were the Levites. And it is their leader, the high priest, in chapter 21, sorry, in chapter 19, I think it is, we will come to that. He was ordained. I think it took three or four days to ordain Aaron, according to that chapter, to make him a high priest. I think it was three days of function. And he is the guy who gave the golden calf. And he is the man who comes first with the sword in hand. Can you see the problem or you don't see a problem? Who suggested the golden calf when the people demanded gods? Who made the golden calf? Who built the altar in front of the golden calf? I'm assuming that you have read the chapter, chapter 32. Who declared the festival that led to revelry, drunkenness and orgy? Who? Aaron the high priest. Aaron the first high priest is the one who caused the people to offend in the first place. The topmost representative of the tribe of Levi, the high priest of the priests, the tribe of priests. Levites were responsible for the sin of these newly liberated slaves. If you read Exodus 29, yeah, this is what I was, if you read Exodus 29, you will see the details of the ordination of Aaron and his tribe for the purpose of leading the Hebrews in their newfound faith in Yahweh. Instead of leading them in worship of their God, he led them away from their God. When people came and asked for a visible God to worship, Aaron had a great opportunity to educate them. Can you imagine if Aaron said, guys, come to me. I want to talk to you about this God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush. I was there, the God who confronted the Pharaoh. I was there, man. I am a witness to it. Seeing miracle does not make you a Christian. Seeing God in action does not convert us. Aaron is a classic case for an unrepentant man. Aaron is a classic case for a man who knew God, but did not have a relationship with God. You may be healed miraculously. You may have seen fantastic answers to prayer. But what's the point? if we don't enter into a relationship with God. Aaron had a great opportunity to educate them. Instead, he misdirected them away from the true God. What happened afterwards is a sad story of sin crouching at the door. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put every man his sword by his side, and go in and out from gate to gate throughout the camp, and slay every man his brother, and every man his companion, and every man his neighbor. Now, one more question. Where did these Levites get swords from? I mean, they were a bunch of slaves. Hello. They were not, I don't think Pharaoh would have allowed them to have even a knife. So where did they get the swords from? Very interesting, isn't it? Where did these newly liberated slaves get swords? God did not ask them to collect swords from Egypt. He instructed them to carry gold and silver. Unfortunately, that turned into a god. God did not take them out of Egypt to fight and kill. 
but to worship him. This is something we need to understand. God told Moses and Aaron to go and speak to Pharaoh. What were they supposed to say to Pharaoh? They may worship God, not conquer a land. That was not the purpose. God said, go and speak to Pharaoh. Let my people go so that they may worship me. A three days journey to worship me. I mean, you may say that was a devious way of getting them out. I do not know. But that was the intention. God has chosen us to worship him, not to fight for him, not to conquer anyone. Triumphalism is not God's plan. Gloating over the defeat of our enemies is not God's plan. God's plan is that we will become a community of worshipping people. So where did these newly liberated slaves get swords? Well, we know where they got it from. God saved them from Egypt with a mighty arm, his own strength. And the Egyptian army chased them. And they perished in the Red Sea. The following morning, they found their dead bodies on the side, on the beach. And obviously, they felt that they now have to defend themselves. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day, Exodus chapter 14, 30, out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead upon the seashore. Well, why waste a good sword? And who had them? The privileged in the community. Moses also belonged to the tribe of Levi and Aaron. So the priests had them, nobody else. The people with power had them, nobody else. And this is abuse of power. However, it seems that Israelites, seeing the dead Egyptian soldiers, acquired their weapons from them. God called a people to worship him. But because sin is crouching at the door, they turned into an army, a fighting lot. Suddenly, Levi and his tribe are transformed into the ultimate champions for the cause of God, a kind of war machine. An hour ago, these Levites were getting drunk and dancing before the altar of the golden calf. Now they are agents of God's wrath, the soldiers of God, killing his brother, neighbor, and friend. These are the people who murdered 3,000 people to put a smile on God's face, cleanse the nation of sin, and earn the right to lead the nation in worship. If your God is a golden calf, then you are going to behave like an animal. Instead of being covered in shame and turning to God in repentance, they take up the sword left behind by the dead Egyptians and became heroes of divine cause. Many years later, we would hear another high priest say, it is better to put to death one man so that the whole nation may not perish. Aaron had no guilt in betraying his God. Caiaphas had no shame in plotting the murder of the Son of God. This is the tragedy of the sin crouching at the door. This is what happens when we do not fall on our feet and repent, instead try to be champions for the cause of God. And I hope this would be a warning to the Christian community anyway. Next week, we will look at what Moses forgot. We may also look at what does it mean to be free. So the topic today was the paradox of freedom. What is freedom? The paradox of freedom. God bless you and um, see you whenever.